Tuameva Marta Chepita Tuameva Tuameva Vandhu Chasaka Tuameva Tuameva Vidya Dravinam Tuameva Tuameva Saravam Mamadeva Deva I bow to that infinite Lord who is also present in you. This is the wonderful thing about the Namaskar gesture. Instead of the handshake that we have in the West, that, hi, a fellow like this, it's bowing to the soul in you. That kind of respect. It's an important thing to maintain respect for everyone. That's one of the qualities that I used to see in my guru. You might think, well, somebody as great as he was would be. Uh, he would expect respect, but how should he give respect? How can somebody on a mountaintop admire the height of an, an anthill? Actually, he saw God in everybody, and so he respected all, and he bowed to all in that spirit. And when we touched his feet, he always put his hand like that to indicate, I give your devotion to God. It doesn't belong to me. He didn't see himself as more important, more anything than any of us, except in one beautiful respect. Whereas some people feel that they're bigger, he felt he was smaller. Where some waves tower over others, his wave was hardly existent. He saw himself as just a manifestation of that infinite. I would like to read to you from this book of my recorded conversations with Yogananda. One of the amusing things about the spiritual path is the intellectuality and the self-importance that comes with it. Oh, I know, I had a lot of that myself. I was sort of intellectually proud. But I reached the point where I thought, I'm dry. There's no happiness in this. There's something wrong. I remembered when I was a child how happy I had been. And I thought, what's happened to that happiness? I know so much, I've read so much, I can out-argue anybody I meet. And yet I'm not happy. And I realized that I needed to get back to my own simplicity. So when I met my guru, he worked hard on helping me to get away from intellectuality without dulling my intellect. And he worked to help develop my heart quality. I remember how he himself used to make fun. He had quite a lot of fun with the pedantry that he observed in people. I've seen so many people on the spiritual path they think they're somehow um, in a position to sneer at other people because they know certain truths. Well, that shows they don't know them, doesn't it? Anyway, this is a delightful story. The master found amusement, if anything, in pedantry. He would sometimes joke about its pretensions. A story he liked to tell laughingly was the following. The wife of a certain philosopher asked him to go out and buy her a bottle of oil. He was returning later with the bottle when he began to muse, Now, is the oil really in the bottle? Or do my senses deceive me? Could it be rather that the bottle is in the oil? His wife met him at the door and demanded, Where is the oil? My wife, the philosopher declared grandly, I have just made an important discovery. 
Where is the oil? She repeated. I'm coming to that, he assured her. Listen, I purchased the oil. Then, looking at it, I thought, yes, this is oil, and it appears to be inside the bottle. My apperceptive perception, however, doubts whether the oil really is in the bottle or whether the bottle might not possibly be inside the oil. Where is the oil? demanded his wife. Yes, 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 I'm just coming to that, he assured her hastily. So then, I upturned the bottle, and now I think that maybe the oil was in the bottle. You fool, cried his wife. Picking up a broom, she beat him over his apperceptively perceptive head with it. Now I know, the philosopher concluded in triumph, the oil was in the bottle. The master commented, with real intellectuals, you don't have any trouble. They want the truth, not mere definitions of the truth. With these half-breeds, however, the moment you open your mouth, they are already convinced that you are a charlatan. I myself remember hearing a scholar in India expatiate at length with vast pride in his learning on the subtle differences between some Prangata Samadhi and awesome Prangata Samadhi. The problem was he obviously had never experienced either of those two states. And I remember two men from South America who visited Mount Washington some 50 years ago. They owned a bookstore in their country. When they discovered that I didn't know the Sanskrit names for the spinal chakras, they wrote me off as a complete nincompoop. Yet the master taught us only the Western, the Western medical equivalents of those terms, coccyx, sacral, lumbar, etc. I don't remember him even calling them chakras, though he may have done so. To us, they were simply centers. Seeing those visitors look down their noses at me with such scorn, however, I decided to learn the Sanskrit terms lest I scandalize some of the people I was supposed to teach yoga. Really, it didn't matter, however. The inner experience of truth is what counts. Rajashi Janakananda was a fully enlightened yogi, yet he spoke the name of his guru's guru, Sri Yukteswar, almost comically. Sirukh Tetraji, he'd call him. What did it matter? He saw Sirukteshwar in visions. Once he was actually touched by that master physically as he meditated with our master. He had attained the same level of insight and enlightenment as Swami Sirukteshwar. Isn't that what it's all about? Someone asked the meaning of Sirukteshwar, uh, asked Master the meaning of Yukteshwar. He said it means one who is united to Ishwara, or God. The Master knew perfectly well the correct terms for the chakras. He knew everything he ever needed or wanted to know, not only in Sanskrit, but in everything. There was an amazing story that Eugene Benvoe, a devout disciple living in Encinitas, told me. I was sometimes present when Master conversed with medical doctors. He'd had no medical training but I observed that he could rattle off complex medical terms as though he himself were a doctor. The others there obviously accepted him as one of their own. As for the master, he was quite natural about it and gave no outward indication of knowing that he was displaying exceptional knowledge. 
Senora Cuaron, the wife of the SRF leader, center leader in Mexico City, told me in Spanish during my visit there in 1954, I once had an interview with the master. I don't know any English, and he didn't know any Spanish. But somehow, I still don't know how, we managed to communicate perfectly. You don't need to seek understanding outside yourself, the master said. Everything you want to know exists already within yourself. One time in writing a poem, he used the word noil. Others pointed out to him that there was no such word in the English language. It exists, the master insisted. He made them search through several dictionaries. At last, somebody found it in an old Elizabethan dictionary. I myself have looked the word up in a recent edition of Webster's International. It appears there with the definition, a short fiber. I somehow doubt that Master used it in that sense. Often, however, I found that he demonstrated knowledge that he couldn't possibly have received by ordinary means. Well, the point is that you don't have to learn everything and study everything in order to know things. It's amazing how often with meditation you can get information that uh, you probably didn't have before. I don't think that's very usually true. I think usually what would happen is that uh, um, you can arrange or gain access to things that you knew in your subconscious. Not, for example, if somebody asked you the population of China, that you could rattle it off just through intuition. But even that would be possible. I was surprised when I wrote my book at your sun sign as a spiritual guide. I'm not really an astrologer. In fact, let's, not, let's take out the word really. I'm not an astrologer. However, I studied it because I had read several times that to really understand the yoga theory well, you need to study astrology. So I thought, well, okay, I'll try. So I studied it for a year, and I saw what they meant, and it was very useful to me. But I wrote a book on it because I found that as I studied these Inspirations for these sun signs came to me and that they were at variance with uh, many standard works on the subject. So I started this book, but there were at least three times when I thought uh, I've bitten off more than I can chew. And I meditated and all of a sudden I gained an insight. Now that insight, maybe it came from another lifetime, maybe it came from some other source, I don't know. But uh, in each case, I found uh, years later in a book on esoteric things that what I had described, the way I had defined uh, this point, had been the way it was defined thousands of years ago, maybe in Chaldea or in ancient Egypt. I was quite surprised by that. But you know, intuition, you have access to all information inside yourself. And there is nothing that you cannot know that way. It's not the recommended way of uh, seeking truth. But don't think that the opposite is, is a better way. Because by studying and reading, it all comes into the mind. And the mind, the intellect, the reasoning faculty is so lumpish and slow. St. Teresa of Avila said that in one moment of ecstasy, she received understanding that it would take her years of study and thinking to arrive at only with the intellect. You are wiser than you know. 
You have the wisdom of the infinite at your fingertips. And the way to access that wisdom is to be more in tune on an intuitive level. Suspend the rational and understand that behind both the emotions and the intellect is the intuition. That intuition can help you to do well anything in life that you are trying to do. It's really a very important teaching because uh, without the intuition, nothing seems to somehow put together. It's sort of like that story of Krishna when Yashoda wanted to tie him up so she could do her work in the kitchen without being disturbed by him. She tried to tie him with a string, and the string was just that much short. She, she went and got some more string and tied it. Still, it was that much short. As much string as she was able to get, the string remained that much short. And then she understood, because she knew that he was also an incarnation of God. And she understood that how can I, with my feeble human attempts, bind the infinite? You can't. So then she prayed, Lord, please let me tie you so I can do my work. And he allowed her to. It's a sweet story, of course. It's an allegory. But remember that in these allegories is a great deal of truth. You can bind the infinite above all by love. When you love him completely, when you love him sincerely, you will find that he becomes yours. Powerful though he is, infinitely knowledge, omnipresent and omniscient that he is, he can become your own if you tie him with the cords of your own devotion. And so, yes, it's good to study scripture. Yes, it's good to reason about these things. Yes, it can help you in certain ways to see life more clearly. But above all, it's almost like setting up nine pins and knocking them down. If you can forget all that and just love God, what else is there? That's why I wrote this next song that I'm going to have our little group sing to you, our Ananda singers. It's called Cloisters. Long I've called you, my Lord, long I've called you. Many years I have longed for your sight, bathed the darkness in tears of devotion, offered candles in prayer, prayer to thy light. How much longer will you stay away, Lord? Come to me, come to me. That isn't the words with which the song ends. It's the mood with which it ends. Let's listen to that song now, and God bless you. Joy to you. Long I've called you, my Lord. Long I've called you. Many years I have longed for your sight. Bid the darkness with tears of devotion. Offered candles in prayer to your light. How much longer, friend, must I cry your name? I am yours, ever yours. We 